Welcome to episode 11 of Pairing, a podcast about pairing wine with art and culture. In this episode, Winston and I dive into a whole new genre as we discuss one of the greatest and most iconic gothic horror novels of all time, Dracula. I was really not expecting to love this episode nearly as much as I do, but in many ways this is my favorite episode of the show so far, as I think it organically encapsulates what I want to do with this podcast, namely, talk about the intersection of art and wine. I found a wine to drink during this episode that fits so awesomely into the mission statement of what I want to do with this show, and so I'm so excited to share that with you too. Dracula is a novel that was very much of its time, but also was very much ahead of its time and planted the seeds of a legend that remains a vital part of our current cultural mythos. We discuss how the book is highly problematic, but also subversive and formally exciting. At one point, I say that this discussion makes me wish that I were back in college so I could write a paper on the subject, which makes me seem like kind of a huge nerd, but also speaks to how into it I was. We also talk a bit about the film Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola, starring the incomparable Gary Oldman, uh, which is one of my favorite bad movies of all time, so I hope you enjoy that. I love this episode, but I do need to include a content warning for discussion of sexual assault. There is some potentially triggering language as we talk a fair amount about how this book contains highly problematic instances of predatory behavior and sexual assault as it relates to Dracula and vampire mythology. I just want to clarify that Winston and I take these issues incredibly seriously, and we do not use this language or discuss these matters lightly. The last thing we want to do is to be insensitive, so if you find this subject upsetting to listen to, much as I love it, I would discourage you from listening to this episode. I do want to encourage you, if you are in need of support, to call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673, that's 1-800-656-HOPE, or to check out RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, dot org. Before we dive in, we have to give a big thank you to our supporters on Patreon. Thank you to our newest patron, Josh LeBounty, and to our advanced, aka producer-level patron, Mara Zobrist. We love you more than we love Keanu Reeves, which, as you'll tell from listening to this episode, is a lot. Thanks to all of our angelic patrons, we have achieved our first goal and are well on our way to our second. Thanks to our patrons, you can now listen to all episodes of the show on SoundCloud. If you would like to join Josh and Mara, check us out on patreon.com slash pairingpodcast to pledge a monthly contribution to become a part of our pairing community, where you will get access to rewards like bonus content, audio extras, live streams, personalized pairings for me, and more. Also, a huge thank you to all of you who have left us a review on Apple Podcasts. Apparently, ratings and reviews specifically on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts are what make the most difference in the mysterious podcast algorithm of destiny. So if you have a moment, it would mean the world to me if you would be so generous as to open up your Apple Podcasts app, if you have it, and leave us a quick review. Don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcasts, or on our website at thepairingpodcast.com, or you could email us at pairingpodcast at gmail.com. Without further ado, here is episode 11, Dracula. So we're both really excited to record this episode. It's one that we've been talking about for a long time. 
don't you go ahead and... Dracula. Ah, Dracula, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to my home. Um, so I feel like it's especially appropriate that we're recording this episode right now because um, The Darkest Hour just came out with Gary Oldman... Who also plays Dracula. <laughs> Who also plays Dracula in Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola. Um, so we're we're talking mostly about the book, but I probably won't be able to help myself, and I'll probably have to reference that movie because it is one of my favorite, like, really bad movies that is out there. It does a very good job of highlighting the fact that Dracula might be about sex. What? <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Hot take. Hot take. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I'm. Vampirism I got that. in general, maybe. What? What? There's something sexual about penetration and seduction. Seduction, and I, I, I just, I don't see it. I think it's totally wholesome. All right. Well, we'll, 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 <laughs> we'll see if I can convince you as we go. All right. So as we go, I figured we'll talk about the book and I'll talk about some of my my wine pairing instincts, maybe with different characters, different moments in the book. But my immediate instinct when I when we said we were doing Dracula was I wanted to drink the wine uh, Valpolicella. 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 So we are drinking a Valpolicella Ripasso, Classico Superiore di Villa Spinosa. Insolato Cesare. Ah. Cesare, Cesare. Cesare. <laughs> the Olympics. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Anybody who's Italian who's listening. I love you. I love Italians. And I love Italian wine, and I love Italian food, and I love everything Italian. Yeah, thanks for gnocchi in particular. Oh, gnocchi. Yeah. Gnocchi. Gnocchi. Um, but this wine is here. I'm gonna. I'm gonna actually have a sip of it because I, I. I had an initial sip, but I haven't really tasted it. So. All right. So this is the Valpolicella. This is the Valpolicella. What are we? What are we... So, um, so in case it wasn't clear with my little Italian rendition, but the producer of this wine is called Villa Spinosa. They are based in the Veneto region of Italy, so that's northeast Italy, around where Verona is. Verona is kind of the main, the main region. Yeah, it's good. Oh, I mean, the main good. city, the main city in that region. Mm-hmm. And Valpolicella is kind of the most famous red wine, other than Amarone della Valpolicella. I'll get into it a little bit um, as we go on. I don't want to talk. I I, I want to start off talking about Dracula a little bit, but I do want to talk about this wine and this producer because I just did a little bit of research, and it turns out they're super awesome. So I do want to talk about that. But we're going to talk about Dracula now. Well, I guess just real quick, I'll talk. I'll talk about my reasoning for Valpolicella in a little bit. But I just wanted to say so. I just did a little bit of research on this particular producer, which I actually wasn't super familiar with. They're pretty popular, and I wanted to get a Valpolicella Ripasso, which tend to be a little bit more expensive, and this one was sort of like relatively well-priced, and I didn't feel like spending an arm and a leg. That swish thing, she taught me that swish thing, where you just oxygenate the wine a little bit in your mouth. Yeah. And uh, I... um, I haven't learned, well, I've learned a little bit from you, but Mm -hmm. one of the things I've learned is that if you do that swish thing, you seem pretty classy. Well, yes. It's it's at least partially a a status thing. It's also a habit thing, though, at this point. Now I do it with beer. I do it with water. (laughs) I do it with with everything. And, And it's just because 
it is actually a way to fully experience the wine in your mouth. And there's a way to do it not obnoxiously. There are some people who are really obnoxious yeah. about swishing the wine around. I try to be mouth. subtle about it. Me too. I always try to be subtle. Super subtle. Not sure how successful I am. But yeah. We well, you know, when people say Winston shot, they usually say subtle. Subtle. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the many things people say about me. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who don't know Winston, that's that's not true. That was no, a joke. No, that no, was a it's joke. Not, no, 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 no. I think subtlety is overrated. <laughs> anyway, so this wine is delicious, and the what I just discovered about this winery is that they're really committed to the intersection of wine and culture, which is kind of what this podcast is all about. Yeah, it's about the intersection of wine and culture, and so they host like movie screenings, theater events, music events, photography exhibitions, writing exhibitions, like all this at their winery, which I think is so, so cool. It's and I didn't beautiful. know that. It's beautiful. It's perfect. I and like living life, you know? It is. Like and really making wine part of your life, which is, I think, what what we're trying to do here. That is what we're trying to do here. And we just found the winery that sort of feels the same way. It's yeah. perfect. So everybody, go visit Villa Spinosa in the Veneto in Italy. Um, one quote that I found that I really liked on their website was, so they say, they say on their website that wine is nature and art is culture. Winemaking is to be set just between them. I think that's beautiful. That is, that's gorgeous. I think that's perfect. Yeah, the mix of artisanship and you know, agrarian, go-with-the-land kind of things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that was beautifully put. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm super eloquent right Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so I wanted to, I have more to say about pairing this particular wine with this particular book, but I think we should start out by talking about the book. Okay. All right, let's talk Dracula for a minute. First I'm going to give we... you the book. So I just bought, I was so excited for this episode that I bought a, fancy edition of Dracula and other Bram Stoker works. It's this beautiful leather-bound tome. It's got marked pages like the Bible. It's, I, I mean, mean, it's just fantastic. I think most books have marked pages, not just the no, Bible. No, I don't mean, I don't mean like the page numbers. <laughs> I mean like on the side where it looks all silver. Oh, 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 you mean the, the plated. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I was like, most books have page be, numbers. Yeah. <laughs> I never learned to read. <laughs> <laughs> Looks just like the Bible. <laughs> well, it kind of does, except it does, it's way except more fun to read. It is way more fun to read. No offense to the Bible. I think the Bible's a good read, too. But Well, I like the Song of Solomon. For sure. But anyway, so Dracula um, Dracula is one of my favorite books. Big time. And uh, that's for many, many reasons. But part of it is that the entire book is written in excerpts from people's diaries, from newspaper stories. It's, it's very much... Of letters. Its, yeah, letters. It's very much of its time. And it tries to communicate um, <clears throat> from various people's perspectives. That said... It has, like, a ton of flaws. I really don't think that women have a lot of agency in Dracula. There's basically two women. There's the saintly Mina Harker, who's just, like, this perfect Victorian, you know, paragon of virtue and 
and chastity and then there's her friend lucy who is raped basically repeatedly Mm -hmm. until she eventually dies and becomes a vampire and then has to be killed again because women experiencing sexuality is bad 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 um yeah you know at this time yeah i think it well i don't know i'd have to reread the book but I do. It may be a little bit more complicated than that. I and I just to give Bram Stoker the credit that he probably doesn't deserve. And again, I'd have to reread it. Maybe he was trying to make some sort of commentary about sexual repression or something. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. No, I think that I think that's actually right. I think that I mean Dracula again. Hot take about sex. He does want to talk about sexual repression and what it does to people. Yeah. And I think that part of what Dracula is is exploring this idea that, you know, sexuality unchained isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it was disruptive to society at that time. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of seduction and free sexuality, and I mean, Dracula ultimately comes off as kind of a sympathetic character mm-hmm. and he, like except that he's a huge rapist torturer but then it's all about how oh he's like trying to find his soulmate and all this stuff and it it really has to do i think with repression and how repression affects people right know? i uh, i i wrote a paper about this shit in college and one of the things I said was that uh, women don't have enough agency in a lot of romantic literature as exemplified whoa. by Dracula. So whoa. 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 I know. Whoa. Hot take. Whoa. So many hot takes in this <laughs> in this episode. But what I'm building towards is I, I, I would like to hear your impressions and what you want to say. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to be perfectly honest because I read the book and I saw the movie I mean, the movie is almost cartoonishly comical in many ways Yeah. in in terms of its representation of this story. It's and again, talking about Francis Ford Coppola, Coppola's uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Right. So he's really trying to be authentic to the book, which he does in some ways. But it's like, you know, Keanu Reeves is in it and it and. Which I God bless Keanu. Oh my Reeves. I God, love I love him. I, I mean, love him. He's terrible in that movie, but I well, love him. <laughs> but Jonathan Harker and Mina Harker are kind of underwritten characters, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, Mina Harker is written as this sort of saint, like Saint. Um, not it's not Beatrice from she's not a saint, but Beatrice from like the Divine Comedy, where like uh-huh. she doesn't. Uh huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's, she's just she's a muse. She's a muse yeah. more than she is a. Um, a, a agent yeah, of and, change. Yeah, and Jonathan Harker is just kind of like, oh, well, I love you. It's like the suitors and Lucy have much more agency. Um, and that's yeah. that's really where the, like, they're much the more meat. interesting characters. Yeah. They're much more fun. And they represent, and... I think, different kinds of at the time was like male success and male sexuality. So you have Lord Godalming, mm-hmm. who is a, you know, a British aristocrat. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, the Texan. I forget his name, but he's, you know. Played this... by Carrie Elwes. No, Carrie Elwes is Lord Godalming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I forget who plays the Texan. Um, 
but the, you know, and he's like, you know, virile American, yeah. self-made, yeah. ha, ha, ha. You know, at least the the British version of that, or right. you know, because it's Bram Stoker, the Irish guy living in America version of that. Yeah. And then you have Doctor Seward, um, who's you know a man of science and mm-hmm. all this stuff, and it's all they all kind of are collapsed into the yearning. And the like, true sexuality that exists between Dracula, Lucy, and Mina, mm-hmm. um, but they're mm-hmm. still like struggling to try and understand. And I think that's what's what's kind of cool about the book, is that yeah. it's like it's very Victorian, but it's also kind of trying to shake it, you know. Well, what's interesting to me, and let's also not forget about. Van Helsing. Oh, of course, Van Helsing. Ah, Van Helsing. Yeah, Van Helsing, we will talk about him. We will talk about him. But, so, I guess to me, because I read the book, I forget exactly when I read the book, but I've always been into, really into vampire lore and mythology. Right. You know, people say they're either werewolf people or vampire people. I'm totally a vampire person. Just because I think, I don't know, I'm just really drawn to that that mythology and what it has to say about human nature. And often it's quite ugly. And I think that it's funny because we've been rewatching like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. And it's very funny because things to me that I watched when I was younger or read when I was younger and just sort of perceived as really sexy, I now see as really problematic. Yeah, like kind of rapey. Very, very <laughs> rapey. Well, I mean... Vampirism. That's what vampirism is. is. That's what it is. It's rape, and um, and that's incredibly troubling. And so, like thinking back on that, and like thinking about why that seems so appealing to me when I was younger, is sort of troubling because it's. I think it reflects something that we kind of, in our screwed up society, emphasize as sexy. Yeah, and. Um, and I, and I think that the trend is now moving a little bit away from that and like, you know, new vampire movies and shows, which are pretty dumb, like, you know. But even the Mormon one, the Twilight Yeah, books, <laughs> the like, Mormon one. <laughs> um, I, I think they all have to do with like a loss of control. And and, yeah. and and where, like, lycanthropy stuff does too, but that's loss of control of the self like releasing the beast within, right? Yeah. And vampirism to me seems like it's about surrendering control to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like allowing yourself to really sub. And, yeah. You know, your daylight self might fight against it. And, you know, that's what Lucy does. And they're they're constantly trying to save her. I mean, I, I lose track of how many blood transfusions she gets yeah. in the book. <laughs> but all three suitors like take turns giving blood to her. Because she keeps waking up, like, drained, and you know, because Dracula's drinking her blood and stuff. But what it really is, is I think it's her, like, torn between wanting to experience this sort of sexual fulfillment and then her knowledge that as, you know, a lady of the aristocracy, she has to fulfill certain roles. Yeah. And so, like... I think that's the real tragedy is... is not, you know, like she's getting raped. Like, let's let's be honest about that. Yeah. But she's also kind of wanting freedom from right, in the a certain... suitor 
in a certain Class way, in a certain way, like society has put her in such a place that she's more drawn to yeah. being taken advantage of and being hurt yeah. than to live a boring life in well, which she is yeah. she is expected to fulfill a certain role, you know, certain roles and and she's not really comfortable in either place and. Um, you know, it's not to excuse any of the raping that Dracula does, because it's all rape, but um, I think that Lucy sort of embodies this tension between, you know, post-enlightenment, post-industrial revolution, ideas of, like, women women are actually people. Yeah. And Bram Stoker himself doesn't actually seem comfortable with that idea, and so he has to right. sacrifice Lucy. Like, the idea of activated feminine sexuality, I mean, throughout horror, any time a woman has like a sexual life she has to be punished yeah you know which is which is something that i found very frustrating and disappointing about the movie because because in many ways the movie is very loyal to the book and lucy is a total caricature like all she has to do is like moan and yeah. Just like breathe suggestively. Like and yeah. the and busty redhead victim. Exactly. While Winona Ryder, who plays Mina Harker, is, you know, portrayed as the the sweet soul and you know, and and, and I also yeah. think that, that like if you think about Mina and Dracula, you know, he sees her as his redemption, his true love. Right. And and I think that that's a that's bullshit. I'm sorry. The like in terms of in terms of what it means for like horrible horrible men to like say oh but i love this pure innocent woman and so i can be saved yeah and it's I... like that's not her fucking job yeah. like... <laughs> no it's not nor and 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 like half the first part of the book is her like trying to save jonathan and John, I mean, Jonathan is again not that remarkable. No, he's really you know? not. He, he's just like the best thing he does is escape Dracula's castle, and Mina goes halfway across Europe to rescue him from this convent and right. bring him back and like nurse him back to health right. and does all this. Right. And she's nursing Lucy the whole time. This yeah. idea of this endlessly giving woman. Yeah. You know, and then Dracula puts her on the same pedestal that we as the reader have also been seeing her doing. I think mm-hmm. that's what's kind of cool about the book is that and I don't want to give credit to Bram Stoker or maybe I, I should but I think like, it's a very I mean I think it's subversive even if it doesn't mean to be because yeah. or or he was trying to be subserf, sub, subserf, subversive <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to be subversive subtly enough that he wasn't called out on it. Yeah. Again, I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. Right. Let's let's try to give Bram Stoker some credit. It's unlikely that he deserves it, but it's possible. And I do think, like, just because we're having this conversation, there's a lot of ways to look at what's going on in yeah. this story. That it is, it it really is very complex. Like it's. Yeah. Um, You're not left with the idea that Mina and Jonathan have like a happy, blissful marriage. No. The idea is kind of like the passionate, like Mina does kind of fall passionately in love with Dracula, mm-hmm. which again, there's so many rapey elements that it's hard to credit that as organic, but there is something about when they finally kill Dracula, it's sort of like they're 
killing passion, you know, Dracula. Yeah. Dracula's just sort of raw passion and yeah. want and id and libido mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and Victorian society manages to kill this incredibly powerful creature. Yeah. But, you know, is that really the best outcome? Like, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't of. know. And well, what I find really interesting and what I would be curious, I don't know if you know, uh, I would, you know, I probably should have done some research beforehand. How much of this vampire mythology did Bram Stoker create and how much of it survives and is such a prevalent part of our current like pop culture? Yeah. And it's just like a part of our cultural understanding of because even people who haven't read Dracula they know about Dracula right you know you know that he uh you know he has to sleep in a coffin he has a castle in Transylvania Mm -hmm. and he and he can't survive in well in the in the book he he can go into daylight yeah he can walk in the daylight he can walk in the daylight but he but he you know fears crosses powerful in the daylight yeah. He has to have grave dirt, like consecrated earth. Yeah, the in whole consecrated earth. Speaking um, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which we've been watching, <laughs> one of my favorite episodes is the Dracula episode. Oh, it's wonderful! It's so great, and how they how they kind of incorporate him into their vampire world, which I think is still somewhat problematic. But Joss Whedon is very aware of what he's doing, and he was purposefully trying to make evil ugly right. in Buffy and in Angel. And so they're constantly mocking him for being like a, a glory hog yeah, of yeah, for, <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, Although I do really like his depiction in season eight. Um, in that oh, one yeah, that's right. That's right. they kind of realize him as a character. Yeah. And, and he's, I mean, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but you can get the um He's emotion. much more comical. He's and, comical and but then, and and real feeling, yeah. not just a. He has dimensions. He has dimensions, <laughs> but what I oh go ahead no go ahead. Well, I, what you said before about like did Bram Stoker invent vampire mythology? No, I don't think he did. No, he I didn't. Think, like that was that was prevalent in most folk tales in most cultures, but I think what he did was graft vampire mythology onto sort of Victorian sensibilities. And I think Mm -hmm. he recognizes, not like Bram Stoker didn't know he was writing a book about sex and repressed sexual desires. Yeah. You know, of course he knew that. I think he made it so accessible. And also I think going back to the fact that the book is written in, you know, diary entries and letters and everything, it allows you to sort of remove yourself and experience it through the eyes of so many different people that you as the reader don't feel any guilt. Mm. Like, Mm -hmm. as salacious as the book is, you know, like, imagine if it was just from Mina's point of view, or Mm -hmm. just from Lucy's, or just from Lord Godalming's Mm -hmm. or Van Helsing's. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, you couldn't really be in there for the titillating, you know, it's all about that sort of tension of, you know, what's actually happening when we leave her alone, and, Mm -hmm. oh, no, and we wake Mm -hmm. up and she's pale, and... She's mm-hmm. all exhausted, and I, you know, yeah. I think that kind of gives the reader like a a, a free pass, yeah, to be like, oh, this is sort of pornographic, but yeah. I don't have to feel guilty about it, right? Yeah, no, I think that's very. I think those are very, very good points. 
So what I thought might be fun is if we go through, well, maybe let me talk about this wine and why I think this wine is an appropriate pairing for this book. All right, folks, fun time's over. (laughs) Time for your wine education. So we're drinking, as I said earlier, a, a wine from the region of Valpolicella in the Veneto. And Valpolicella is is the name of the region. And the primary grape is a grape called Corvina, which I think mo- most people probably haven't heard of because it's not very well known on its own. Um, I love Corvina. And it's the grape of Valpolicella and Amarone. I'll talk a little bit about Amarone. Talked a little bit about it before. It's the, it's the wine that's made by letting grapes... Uh, remain on the vine a little bit longer so they dry out a little bit and then hanging them so they dry out even further or or dry them on bamboo mats. Whoa. Yeah, so it yields, Amarone yields this incredibly dense, rich, thick red wine. It's as close as you can get to like a fortified kind of port kind of wine without actually being fortified with with extra alcohol with brandy or anything like that. So it's incredibly, it's, if I, and they're, they're quite expensive. I think Amarone would be a perfect wine to pair with Dracula as well. Um, Because, and part of what I was thinking is that, you know, this kind of dried out grape process, which is called apasamento. 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 To like dry and redry and hang them. Mm -hmm. What you just described. Mm Mm-hmm. And that that I think can kind of refer to how we find Dracula, like when when we find when Jonathan Harker finds Dracula when we first meet Dracula, he's very dried out, and of course in the movie is so iconic, right? Yeah, with the, the with butt the, crazy the butt, butt hair, hair yeah, yeah. With oh God bless Gary Oldman, he is just one of the greatest actors of our generation. Anything dignity, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> it's the most cartoonish thing ever, and My you're still. Knows no bounds. Exactly. I think we should do a Gary Oldman day. <laughs> we could do a whole Gary Oldman I'd episode. Be so down. But I think like a movie marathon of Gary. Oldman. I also want to do that for Keanu Reeves because Keanu has a great. I fucking love Keanu Reeves. Who doesn't? If you don't love Keanu Reeves, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, sure. Maybe he's not quote unquote the best actor but he's so much fun and he's such a good guy and like and come on that man is like a beautiful acrobat i think he might be immortal he might be immortal probably he might be a vampire might be a vampire i don't know about vampire but but he's definitely (laughs) like i saw him at uh the Dumbo coffee shop. I forget what it is. It's like super hipster coffee, whatever. Oh, the, yeah, I know. I know which yeah. one you're talking about. I was at a production meeting and he just like came in with his beard, all Keanu Reevesy, and everyone was sort of like, and you know, it's New York, so everyone has to be cool. So everyone was like, oh, it's Keanu Reeves. Okay, cool. All right, bye. But he is so nice and he like over tips and nice he's guy. in great shape. Like, you yeah, can't tell his like, age. I think he's, like, 247 Yeah, yeah at something. least. Something like that. Um, but he looks amazing. Anyway. Sorry. Long story short, we love Keanu Reeves. We love Gary Oldman. They're amazing, amazing. Well, I mean, Keanu Reeves is just an amazing person and has had an amazing career. Gary Oldman is, 
I think, one of the finest actors of our generation. Oh, definitely. And can't wait to see The Darkest Hour. Haven't seen it yet, but... Yeah, uh, we were talking about it, and, like, we read some reviews, and it was, like, basically... It's just a one-man show of Gary Oldman being Winston Churchill. And I was like, that doesn't sound bad. (laughs) Totally. Going back to the wine. um, So Corvina is the main grape of both Valpolicella and Amarone. Mm -hmm. And Corvina may be derived from the Italian word corvo, which means crow. And, of course, a black crow reminds me of Dracula because he can turn himself into a bat. Well, or maybe like a it's, flock of bats. Or a flock of bats. Or a red mist. Or, or a red a mist. Wolf. Or a wolf. Yes, he can turn himself into lots of things. He's a super vampire. Corvo is also the hero of the very popular game Dishonored. Um, I did where, not know that. Yeah, where you're this disgraced imperial person who has to use the powers of shadow to like transport oh. yourself. Well, that sounds revenge. totally it's very Victorian. Oh, and that sounds totally like Dracula. But anyway, with Dracula, it's like all of Victorian society is kind of being called into question, and it reasserts itself at the end. But it seems very hollow. And I think Mm. that's what's cool and subversive about the book. Yeah. Because really, once once Dracula is sort of chased down, you know, he goes back across the sea and um, they chase him on trains and in carriages and stuff. And then he has like this whole clan of hill people fighting. And the Texan is the only one who actually dies. Um, of course, fighting him. Of course, he's the he's he's the black guy of <laughs> this book. How did how did Bram Stoker really feel about? Him? <laughs> but, but but you know it's this heroic death and everything. It's all reasserting Victorian values, but it feels kind of brittle, and I'm not sure if he meant it or if it just feels that way from our perspective. But I think mm-hmm. that's one of the cool things about it is that you sort of you question the nobility of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where Van Helsing comes in because Van Helsing is both, he's sort of, he's critical of what they've been doing. Like the gallantry of, of these guys like, oh, we're going to protect her and we're going to stand watch and we're going to do all these blood transfusions. It's great. And Van Helsing's like, great, okay, do the blood transfusions. But you have to understand that what you're dealing with is outside of our culture and outside of our norms and all this other stuff. Yeah. And while he may end up sort of supporting it, he he really doesn't. He doesn't seem like he cares for the culture so much. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just thinking about so Anthony Hopkins plays yeah. Van Helsing, uh, yeah. Van Helsing. And, yeah. and he I I think he totally phones it in, but it's hilarious. <laughs> and he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give her the blood transfusion." Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Oh yeah. She I swear. Blood. I swear, like, Anthony Hopkins had, like, three days to film this whole movie. And he was like, okay, let's do this. <laughs> I have a hat. She will need blood. <laughs> Only your arm, Lord Godalming. Although they change his name in the movie, which is weird. Lord they, Godalming. Yeah, they change his name yeah. to Lord something Something else. Let's, and, let's... and it's not Lord Godalming. But also that idea of the expert. Lord Arthur Homewood. Homewood. Yes. Homewood. Different than Godalming. I wonder why. Yeah, I, well, I don't know why that is. Yeah. What? I don't know. Like, I don't it seems it. an arbitrary choice. But anyway, I want to talk more about Van Helsing, but I just wanted to finish my thoughts about oh, the yeah, wine. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. You're All fine. these tangents you're brought fine. to you by Winston. 
it's it's a show of <laughs> tangents. Tangents are my favorite thing. But so anyway, so we talked about Corvina, the grape, and Corvo, and crows, and bats, and all that stuff. Very nice, very dark. And uh, talked about Amarone and the Passamento process. So what we're drinking right now is Valpolicella Ripasso. And what Ripasso means in Valpolicella is it literally means, I believe, to pass over or to do again. So basically, after they've already fermented the essentially just Valpolicella Classico wine, if it if it didn't go through this Ripasso process, it would just be called Classico. So it's already fermented wine that then comes into contact with like the seeds and the pulp of Amarone. Mm. So this really rich, intense, deep, dark, velvety wine it just comes into the kind of the dregs of that and that gives it a little bit more richness it gives it a little bit more intensity it's a it's a much more intense wine than regular valpolicella and to me the thematic through line there is it's like it's almost like this wine feeding off of the dregs of another wine oh. like like vampires like drink renfield. the blood oh my god can we talk about renfield let's yeah. talk about renfield let's talk about renfield played by tom waits in the, the unbelievable tom waits and i i think he does, he has the best part in the film i think he's he gives the best performance in the film right cuz they're like literally tom waits go nuts tom and waits he's like no problem do you <laughs> no problem Get. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so Renfield's whole thing is that Dracula um, bewitches him and basically promises him that if he serves Dracula, then he will have immortal life. But the sort of catch is he immediately has this lust to consume lives, but Renfield is not of Dracula caliber. So his whole thing is like he's bugs mm-hmm. and he wants to like he wants to get a spider to feed bugs to yeah so that he can get a cat to feed the spider to yeah you know, it's this whole like you know she swallowed the fly to get the thing yeah you know or she swallowed the spider to get the fly and like it's he just r- reduces him to this shell of a man and i think that's also a cool um comment. other other aspect of dracula's power right not just you but, know raping people but i mean physically but it's also about like and this mentally yeah this happens to jonathan harker too is like the idea of just being a good you know hard-working middle-class person is very criticized in this book Mm -hmm. you know rentfield is just totally destroyed by his desire to at first do a good job because he's the first realtor that goes to Dracula and Dracula's like I want to buy Carfax Abbey also I will destroy your mind yes you it, know? oh that's right that's right and then Jonathan Harker goes and and after Renfield is destroyed and committed to an insane asylum and which Jonathan... Dr. Seward is his doctor right right yeah also and... doing a bunch of heroin maybe well, at least in the movie. Yeah, in the movie he does heroin. In, well, they talk about that, but I I don't think in the book he's 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 doing so much heroin. I think they may there may be mentions of like laudanum or. Well, uh, the film just wasn't raunchy enough, so they had to add yeah. in a random, <laughs> random side plot for well, Doctor Seward. I think but... one one of the errors the films makes is that it it has to make everything gritty and it can't kind of deal with the contrast like yes. the book is trying to say like oh this is all kind of 
there, but it's maybe a little hollow. And the movie's like, no, everything is just gritty and gross and you know, Intense it's like, it's like sex. Yeah. And did we mention sex? Yes. Yeah. Oh, also sex. There's there's a sex element <laughs> in the story. Um, but I do think it really criticizes sort of bourgeois values, and I, you know, I know that's really pretentious to say, but like Jonathan Harker and Renfield are both sort of destroyed by just trying to like be good guys and do their jobs, yeah. you know, and represent the firm in a positive light. Like Jonathan's even writing in his diary, like, oh, you know, the firm would be so upset if they learned that this, that, and the other thing, and they've said that yeah. I can stay extra long to do the deal, but. Uh, and, you know, Renfield's, of course, totally insane. But I I think that the book grapples with that on, on maybe a subconscious level, which is pretty cool. I think so. I think so. So I've got just a couple more notes here about the wine. Oh, ooh, the wine and book pairing. So I talked about Rapasso and how I see that as a metaphor for, you know, wine drinking the dregs of Draining other life. life. Yeah. Yes. But so to talk about to talk about the land itself where where this is. So the so the 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 name of the wine as I said earlier is the Villa Spinosa. So Villa Spinosa is the producer. Valpolicella Ripasso, we talked about what that means. Classico Superiore. Classico Superiore just means that it's been aged, I think, for at least a year. This one has been aged, I believe, for three years, all in all, in between in barrel and in bottle. And um, Iago, J-A-G-O, which, quick sidebar, for a hot second, I was like, maybe I should say this wine for Othello. The pity of it, Iago. Oh, man. So Iago is this uh, historical crew. So crew being, it literally means growth, but it, it just means a, a, a special site, a special place within a location, within, a, within an appellation, within a you know, designation for a wine region. And it is in part of a valley called the Negrar Valley. And I found in my research that the name Negrar seems to be derived from the Latin Nigrariu, which means the land with the black earth. And that, to me, is reminiscent of, you know, Dracula having to bring the earth of yeah. his castle with him wherever he goes. And it's very interesting because, like, I think Dracula is supposed to represent death itself in some ways. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's what... It's one of the only things that the book Dracula and the movie Nosferatu have in common mm -hmm. is this idea that he shows up on a ship and everyone on the ship has died. Oh, that's definitely oh, that's totally part of the yeah. Dracula mythos is right. is every he he has to travel on ship with the with the soil of his land with right. him and everyone dies because he feeds on them to right. regain his youth and his life. But he also kind of like drives them crazy. Yeah, like he's he's chaos, he's death incarnate. But when you talk about black soil, like black soil traditionally is the most fertile, mm -hmm. nutrient rich. It's true. The soil. darker the soil, the more. Yeah. Yeah. And and he has to take it with him wherever he goes. So there's this element of kind of rebirth that happens not by necessarily killing Dracula but but sort of by engaging with this this horrifying death idea. Well, so here here's what I'm going to say is that Dracula represents 
many of our greatest fears or our greatest repressions. So there's sexual repression and right. there's fear of death. Mm -hmm. And Dracula represents a release from both of those things. Right. You'll never die and you'll have sex all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you sure will get fucked. Yep. One so, way or another. One way or another. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, problematic thing, it, it, it's, it's a very interesting discussion to me. It makes me wish I were back in college and could really, yeah. you know, write a paper on this book. Well, what I think is that, like, you know, like I said before, it's like Victorian society reasserts itself, but it doesn't necessarily win. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, well, we had to deal with it this way because that's how everything is. But yeah, eh, it's like, a really it's a really interesting story because there's no there's no resolution in some ways. Well, like, like they killed Dracula, they killed but there's Dracula, no happily but that, ever after. Exactly, exactly. Like it's not like, haha, we killed the bad guy. It's it's okay, he's dead, now what do we do? Now that yeah. we've all been through this and we know what it's like. And one of the um, things, I mean, like, they really lean on it super hard in the movie to the point that it, you know, becomes telegraphed, but Mina is put up as this saint. Mm -hmm. the whole, like, her mere presence um, restores Jonathan Harker to Sandy. Yeah. Like, she, she is this, like, divine being. Right, and then after she falls in love with Dracula and goes with him, and they rescue well rescue her, but uh, that was a quote mark thing, listeners. But um, Air quotes. but like after they kill Dracula, it's sort of like she loses some of that light. Yeah. You know, and and it's like they want to possess her, like they want to possess the Holy Grail, like she is really this object, and only Dracula actually interacts with her as a person. Yeah. Like, and of course he's rapey and he's doing, it's not to excuse any of that, but he does actually speak to her. Again, I think it's a, I think it, he represents a sort of freedom. That also terrifies us. That also terrifies us and it is problematic in this, in, in this world, the only freedom that women could have was like falling victim to their sexual depravity, you know, and so that's... Right, that old Greek idea and, that, like, women are inherently sexual and, like, crazed sexual beings and men have to control them. Is that a Greek idea? Yeah, the, actually, the Greek word for unwed woman is the same as the word for filly, mm. which is, like, an unbroken female mm -hmm. horse. Mm -hmm. And the mm -hmm. Greek idea was that, like, women were nature and men were culture. And so yeah. women left alone were just Again, these Again, speaking about the intersection of nature and culture, bringing it all back together. We didn't even plan this. <laughs> this is how we started the episode, talking about the sorry, intersection of sorry. nature and culture. No, no, I think it's great. <laughs> I think it's great. I mean, I think that there's this idea of this dichotomy between male and female, masculine, feminine, nature versus nurture or culture or something. And I think we're coming to a point in our society where we're, we're beginning to accept that those things can exist together and, and like even within a person. Right. You know, like we can have elements of both of those things within each of us. We don't have to be one note. Well, and even Dracula, like, when he walks during the day, or generally, like, Dracula's fairly androgynous, if you talk about, yeah. like, traditional gender roles. Yeah. He's pale, you know, he's very sweet and charming. There's no, like, brawny masculinity No, about he's him. in many he's ways... vulnerable. In many ways, he's very feminine. Yeah. But, and that's sexy. Right. So, 
it's a very interesting book. It's a very problematic book. But I think there's a reason why it maintains such a prevalent place in our culture. It still does. It really does. Oh, yeah. We've and... never gotten over vampires. Oh, no. And and most of the vampires we have in our popular culture, like we were talking about Buffy and Angel, they're at least a little bit influenced by Bram Stoker. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, within each vampire, it within each, I, I keep using the word mythos, but I think that's sort of the right I mean, word. It's perfectly right. But, but like, you know, with Anne Rice, the way that she deals with vampires is a yeah. little bit different. She's even than... amped up on the sex. Oh. She's like, Dracula, not enough sex. Nope. More. Not enough. But she is like, hmm. I, th- I, you know, I think I need my vampire a little more sexy. Let's make Lestat. And so, and I love Interview with the Vampire, too. I think, and I think yeah. that's actually a movie that deals with. But also all the books, and I mean, except for book. Interview with a Vampire, are about Lestat. And Lestat yeah. being like a rock star sex god. Exactly. And Interview, that's why Interview with the Vampire is a little bit more interesting because of Louis. Yeah. The Brad, the Brad Pitt, Pitt vampire. Yeah. Brad Pitt vampire. And and uh, Kirsten Dunst is in that as oh my a gosh, young as the little yeah, one. yeah as the yeah. little one, which I think is very interesting. And you know, so they sort of build a family. In you know, it's it's very interesting. I have a lot. I I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about vampires and the whole how how we perceive that that legend in our and how much it influences our daily life and our daily society. Totally. And some people obviously care about it more than others, but. There we are. Is it all right if I go off on a quick tangent Please. just to do the plot of Dracula yeah. and maybe a little bit of the history behind it? Please do. Okay. So the plot of Dracula is thus. There's a British real estate company that sends a ooh, guy. In, ooh, oh, I have a good sorry. idea. What if I what if I spit fire and pair wines with people who you mentioned in the plot? Sounds awesome. Okay. I'm okay. going to try. Challenge accepted. All right. <laughs> ooh. Ha, ha. Go ahead. All right. Okay. So this British real estate company sends a realtor named uh, Renfield to help facilitate a guy named Count Dracula buying a British abbey called Carfax Abbey. Renfield is Cabernet Franc because he's crazy. Cab Franc is crazy. And uh, Dracula, I'm going to wait on because he's a big one. Okay, go ahead. Okay. So Renfield is there for a few months. Um, he gets driven totally crazy and seduced by Dracula. And um, he basically like stops writing and the company's like, what the hell? And then Renfield turns up in an insane asylum a few months later. And everybody's like, whoa, crazy. So the company being like, all right, well, you know what we should do is just The company send is guy. Robert Mondavi. <laughs> the company's Robert. <laughs> so they send Jonathan Harker. Jonathan Harker who's just gotten engaged to beautiful, saintly Mina Harker. And he goes to Dracula's castle to try and complete the deal. And he does. But Dracula's like, why don't you stay? Why don't you stay? And he keeps like, like making him stay longer and longer. And Jonathan's having these nightmares of the vampire women coming. And, you know, and it's like... By the way, Monica Bellucci plays the head of the, like, vampire women oh the she is cult one people. of the hottest people in the world and i would also pair pino grigio with jonathan carker okay yeah yeah okay because he's perfectly serviceable he's perfectly serviceable. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 jonathan manages to like resist the the fraying of his mind although he's like almost broken and he's writing all this to mina and we have this in the book and he basically escapes through a window 
swims through a river. Like he does this amazing escape and then is like sort of washes up in this um, abbey. And then Mina Harker goes and rescues him. Mina Harker, I'm going to give her Beaujolais. Okay, yeah, because she's life. Um, the whole time this is going on, Mina Harker and Jonathan are both poor. And like British society, especially at this time, is very class conscious. And they're both essentially middle class. You know, they're not from money. Whereas Lucy is this super aristocrat. She's from one of the most prominent families. And so she has all these suitors. But Mina's been her best friend since childhood. And so they're in constant communication. Mina has, uh, uh, sorry, Lucy has three suitors. She has Lord Godalming. She has Dr. Jonathan Seward. And she has whatever the hell the Texan guy's name is. Sorry. I just think of him as the Texan. Texan but... guy is Cabernet Sauvignon. <laughs> but something is going wrong while Mina's in the process of rescuing Jonathan. Like, uh, Lucy starts having these horrible nightmares, and then she's, you know, she's waking up, and she's pale, and she looks drawn, and all this stuff, and so it finally gets to the point where uh, the suitors are giving her blood transfusions. They're like, oh my god, she's so anemic, what's going on? And they're giving her these blood transfusions, but then it doesn't seem to work, and she's got these bite marks, and finally, I can't remember if it's Lord Godalming or her father or somebody else, contacts Dr. Van Helsing. Oh, Dr. Van Helsing. Who's like the leading researcher in, you know, the paranormal. Who we have to give Riesling. Yeah, Riesling. 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 Just Riesling. Just Riesling, okay. Just Riesling. But so he shows up and he's like, um, all right, guys, let me uh, lay some knowledge on you. There's vampires. Uh, the worst vampire is Dracula. Dracula's here because they've sold Carfax Abbey. And Dracula, meanwhile, has come on a ship with the sacred grave earth of his land in his coffin, and everyone on the ship either goes insane, jumps into the sea, or is killed by him in some vague way. Quick sidebar. I'm going to give Lord Godalming Bordeaux and Dr. Jonathan Seward. I'm still thinking about it. All right. Lucy, I feel like Valpolicella is a good one for Lucy. Yeah, because it's so full-bodied. It's full-bodied and ripe and, for the and, drinking and <laughs> sexy, and it's it's just great wine. So as soon as Dracula shows up in Carfax Abbey, he's like he's fucking Lucy's life up, and then Van Helsing comes and he's like, "This is a vampire. This is what we're dealing with," and they're like stringing garlic up all around and. They keep doing the blood transfusion thing. There's crosses and all this stuff. But Dracula can turn himself into red mist. He's beasts. He's he's everything. He's like all the liminal and chthonic things in the world, you know. And it's, it's hard to contain him. And at one point, he busts into the house. This is after he kills Lucy, which she finally just sort of dies of anemia and then is going to come back as a vampire. And they kill her in the tomb. Lots of blood. Lots yeah. of blood. They make Lord by the way, do it. By the way, another great film is Vampire Dead and Loving It, which is Dracula like, Dead and Loving Dracula, It. Dracula oh sorry, Dracula Dead and Loving It. Duh. <laughs> because it's a it's a farce and yeah. a parody of Bram Stoker's. Look at these breasts, I'm British. Uh, yeah. These breasts are British. <laughs> oh, Mel Brooks, God bless you. Go ahead. But yeah, so uh 
Lucy succumbs to the vampiric thing. Um, they kill her. Um, Jonathan is finally coming back and like restoring her health, and then the whole same thing happens to Mina, except that with Mina, Dracula's talking about how in love with her he is. And it's reflected in sort of the diary entries um, that she has and everything. And it's like she really feels like he's her soulmate. And, you know, and so Jonathan and the suitors agree to fight this, like, despicable evil. And eventually they drive him away from Carfax Abbey. They venture into Carfax Abbey and somehow get him to flee but he takes Mina with him because Mina has already gone to him rather than just lying in the bed and getting fed upon. She's like gone to Carfax Abbey and he takes her and they fly away to Eastern Europe. And so there's a lot of trains and carriages and everything else. A lot of trains. Yeah. Dracula has, you know, all these hill people who basically work for him, who he has attacked them, uh, the suitors, I mean, and Jonathan. And they're fighting them off and then... They basically catch Dracula, and they decapitate and stake him. And um, Mina's kind of left, like, with all her divine power in question and sad because she really sort of falls in love with Dracula, even though even if it's like an evil, rapey spell. But um, then they kind of just go back and resume status quo um, after, the, of course, the Texan dies, I think. It's one of the hill people that kills him, but it might be Dracula. I, I don't remember. Okay, so I'm thinking about, so Dr. Seward, I want to get, like, he's kind of like a workhorse grape. You know, like, he's working really hard. He's a very sympathetic character, but yeah. never really. it's never really about him. I want to say something like Sauvignon Blanc, but, you know, something something that's pretty hardworking. I, I don't know. He, or even just like a, like a, California Cab Sauv or, or like a Pinot Noir. Well, I gave the Texan Cab Sauv. Cab Sauv. Cab Sauv. Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is good. He's yeah. good. That's good for, for Dr. Seward. Yeah. yeah, totally. And then for 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 Dracula, I got to give him like Barolo or something. Yeah. Like something incredibly immense and complex and something like that. that has that has subsisted over time. So and, we did Mina. And... We did Jonathan. We did Van Helsing. We did the three suitors. We did the three suitors. And there's Lucy. Lucy. There, did you uh, pair with Lucy? Yeah, I gave her. I gave her Balpolicella oh, while we're yes, drinking. Oh, yes, We're drinking. Yes. We're drinking. Which is interesting that, you know, she gets the grape. She gets the wine that we're drinking now, because, Corvina is kind of overlooked, but it makes some of the best wine. Yeah. Lucy is overlooked, but she's kind of the most interesting part of the story, I think, right. in many ways. Yeah, because um, there's no battle. Like, the whole thing about Mina, there's not really a battle for her soul. It's interesting because she's set up that yeah. way. It's just sort of she's super divine, and then she's in thrall to Dracula. Yeah. Whereas Lucy is like the battle for her yeah. actually takes up a large part of the it book. Does. And it does. And she's struggling to, like, live in both worlds or to live generally or and she for her as you were talking about this struggle between victorian social expectations and baser sexual impulses is much more interesting and clear right to me i think i think we've done it yeah i, I mean i could keep talking about this book with you for another couple hours but i don't <laughs> 
necessarily need to make everyone yeah, else listen to it. I don't want to torture people. Um, as far as the history goes, um, Vlad Tepish was... Um, yeah, Vlad the Impaler. Vlad the Impaler. He, he's who Dracula's based on. He was, you know, like a... 13th century Romanian leader and he fought the Turks. By the way, I was trying to get Romanian wine to drink tonight, but... We struck out. Well, I don't think a lot of it comes to Colorado. Because I've I've had a hard time finding it and I work in a wine store. so. But you can get cooler histories about Vlad. He was a truly terrifying person. Um, And he's sort of... He was... The reason he's the inspiration for Dracula is at one point the Pope awarded him something called the Order of the Dragon, so he became the Count mm. Dracul, which mm. is where Dracula comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was for his service in butchering tons and tons of Turkish people. Yeah, he was super, super evil. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, no, I mean, you know, the Turks were invading. He, it's just like one of those things where there's no good also. guy. You know, just... Lots also, of I'm horrible just, men. So they so they sort of tell other. the story of Vlad the Impaler at the beginning of the oh, movie. Oh, <laughs> the movie. And, yeah. and and he's wearing this just absurd armor. armor. Oh my god. And then, like, and then he stabs the cross and then the whole thing just the starts blood bleeding. Comes oh out. my god. Yeah, it's it's so bad. It's so bad. I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what we might be doing. <laughs> we might have <laughs> to watching watch an Empire movie. But anyway, um Thanks for listening. Oh my gosh, Winston, thank you for sharing your thoughts and expertise. <laughs> my on pedantic this. bullshit. About oh no, Dracula. no, no, no! I think it's totally no. It's ama- It's it's a great conversation to have, and it's a if any book and any movie is good for drinking wine while watching or experiencing it. Dracula. Dracula. <laughs> Welcome to my home. Welcome to my home. I love you, Gary Oldman. Yeah, you're amazing. Never change. Pairing was created, produced, hosted, and edited by Emma Sherjarko, with music, audio recording, and co-hosting by Winston Shaw, and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. If you'd like more information, links, and clarifications on what we talked about this episode, please check out the show notes and visit our blog on our website at thepairingpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month to get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website or on any social media platform. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, cheers.